death has been stopped. It has been arrested, Lord, defeated. And so we ask that as we open your perfect word this morning, that you would lead us in repentance, lead us in obedience, lead us in conviction of your holiness and our need for you, Lord. We love you and we thank you and we pray in your saving name. And we all say together, amen. Let's celebrate Resurrection Sunday. Happy Easter, everybody. You turn to someone around you, share the joy of Christ in them. church and happy Easter. We are so glad that you are with us this morning. What a good day it is to celebrate with the people of God that our hope is fulfilled. We are free, just like the song that we just sang, free from sin, free from the finality of death, free to forever life with Jesus Christ. And so it is a good day to be gathered together this morning to celebrate that and to worship God together. My name is Lauren Schreiber, and I serve at Providence as the Director of Women's Ministry. And again, we just want to welcome you and thank you for being here with us this morning. Providence is a group of people formed around a single and compelling vision to make the gospel unignorable in our city. And so we cling to the gospel in everything that we do. And this morning is no different. We are going to be in God's word because we believe that the Bible has been given to us that we might know, worship, and obey Jesus. And so we will read it together this morning. We are currently in a sermon series called Eyes Full of Grace, Following Jesus to the Cross, where we have been walking through the life of Jesus as he leads us to the cross. And so this morning, we are going to be in Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. If you have a Bible with you this morning, we're going to ask that you turn there with us. If you didn't bring one, but you'd like to be in a hard copy of the text, you should be able to find a copy uh, under the seat around you somewhere. And if you don't own a Bible, you are welcome to take that one home. Uh, It is yours. Again, this morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 8, uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. So when you get there, if you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Verse 1 says, Now after the Sabbath, toward, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. 
Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. I want to say happy Easter to you all. So glad that you're here. My name is Court. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. What a day it is to celebrate Jesus is alive. Amen. And that's, uh, we're just so glad that you made us a part of your weekend, especially if it is your first time. Thanks for being our guest. Uh, what, amazing, what an amazing day it is today. Today, we get to celebrate the most life-changing, history-making, evil-defying moment in human history. And that is the death, the burial, the resurrection powerfully of Jesus Christ from the dead being alive forevermore. And so uh, this morning, I want to celebrate that together by doing one thing. And I really only have one goal this morning, and that's to make this case. That is that Jesus is trustworthy. He is worthy of your trust above any person, above any institution. Jesus stands alone as proving himself worthy of your trust. And by that, I mean trusting him with your whole life, your whole self, your whole future, your whole family, and forever. In order to do that, what I'd like to do is kind of wrap up our Eyes Full of Grace series by finishing with the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the book of Matthew. But in order for us to understand Easter, in order for us to really understand the resurrection, we have to understand everything that happens on Passion Week, everything that's happened the week leading up to Jesus being raised from the dead. Easter tells us the most important things about God, the most important things about us, and the most important things about our future. But this morning, I'm going to be talking about old stuff. (laughs) Um, and by that, I mean old stuff has kind of gone out of style. Old ideas have kind of gone out of style. Everybody wants something new. But in my opinion, and I don't think it's just opinion, the old stuff is the most essential stuff you'll ever grapple with. I am not going to say, listen to me on this one, anything new this morning. Not a single new thing. I won't be bringing, it may be new to you, it's anciently old. Everything that I want to talk about this morning is the old stuff. When I was. 10 years old, uh, my, my father took a new job. He had spent his whole life in mostly the finance realm of things, working with banks and various financial institutions. And when I was 10 years old, he took a brand new job. Sadly, my dad died a couple of years after this. So this was the last job that he ever had. And he took a job at working for the United States Postal Service as a mail carrier deliverer, which was totally different for him. He had never done anything like this. It was wild for our family, kind of odd. And he took a job with the government being his boss and he began to deliver the mail. And as I was listening to sermons this week, I listened to a sermon and, uh, by an older pastor. And I gotta tell you, listening to this sermon, uh, I'm looking forward to being, being an older pastor one day, mostly because there's something about getting older that you just say whatever you want and stop caring at all what people think about it for the, for the most part. This guy is an older pastor, uh, and he was just saying anything that he wanted to say. Listen to me. It wasn't like it was opinion. He's just stating the facts and telling it like it is. And you're like, man, this guy is getting after it. And he's not ashamed of anything that he's saying. He's just getting into it about two thirds of the way into the sermon. You could tell there's just a hush over the crowd. They're just kind of listening to him. He's not really holding punches. And then he makes, he says this line, listen, I didn't write the mail. I just deliver the mail. Don't get mad at me. (laughs) 
And I thought about that, and I, I thought, you know, I didn't think much of it with my dad being a mailman at the very end of his life. I never knew that I would have the same job as him, just a different boss. My job this morning is to deliver the mail, not to write it which is why I'm just sticking with things that are already true. These are old things, ancient things. I don't have to conjure them up. I just got to state them as true. And this morning, my prayer is that as I just kind of state them as true, that they'll stand forth as self-authenticating and that they are worthy. Well, what they do is they point to you that Jesus is worthy of your trust. And so I'm in the same line of work as my dad was this morning. And what I want to do is just pray, God, help me to be faithful to deliver the mail. And I'd like for you to pray with me. So if you'll bow your heads, let me pray. Father, thank you that this morning, my job is to preach good news, not good advice. Thank you, Jesus, that the news is certain. You really did live. You really did die. You really are alive forevermore. Thank you that that's not questionable. It's factual. And thank you, Jesus, that you've given me, although it be a a burden, it's a light burden because you've carried all the heavy weight. And so now I pray that as we go back and we read about the old things, the things that maybe we're not familiar with, that in these old truths, this old news, this good news, we would find matchless hope, matchless peace, matchless joy. Holy Spirit, would you now anoint us to hear the news that you have, can, have you, you've brought us, the news that you have called me to give. And now help our hearts to receive it. God, open our ears to hear it. We ask in Jesus' good name. Amen. Number one, what is Easter all about? First and foremost, foundationally, Easter is about God loving us. Easter is about God's love. It is foundational for us to understand Passion Week with this as the, the preeminent truth. John three sixteen, the most famous verse, arguably in all of the Bible, but at least the New Testament, says As Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, one of the religious elite of his day, Nicodemus shows up at night to ask Jesus, what is the kingdom about? What's your great message? What are you teaching? And Jesus looks at the Pharisee, the man who knows the law and says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The foundation is that God so loved the world that Jesus came. Jesus was sent by the father because God loves you. If you're seated here this morning and you're a human being, you are loved by God. The very fact that you can reason through the words that are coming out of my mouth lets me know that I can be confident to tell you Jesus was sent. Easter's a story about you hearing that God loves you and not a small amount loves you, a great amount loves you. He loves you enough that he was willing not only to come from heaven to earth and descend into a human body and be born in a manger and be poor and homeless, but he loved you enough to die to save you, and to give his life for you. It's impossible to understand Passion Week without that foundational truth. God loves you. Now, number two in the less popular, less popular point about Easter, Easter is about mankind's sinfulness. Easter is about you and me. And once again, if you're human and you can reason through what I'm saying, you and me are sinful, broken, at enmity with God. The story of Passion Week starts in Matthew 26. So we read out of Matthew 28, and that's where we're going to end this morning, but it's important that we go a little bit further back. Last week, we talked about Palm Sunday. Jesus rides into Jerusalem for the final time. But it's important to note that what happens all the way up until the the empty tomb is absolutely essential to understand why we're all happy this morning. 
So what the way that the Bible tells it is that there's two converts of Jesus, two of Jesus's disciples who find themselves on the opposite end, denying Jesus and betraying Jesus. The first one's very familiar to you. You probably know him. His name's Judas. Judas betrays the Lord Jesus on the night of the Passover supper. He goes into the temple and he, conv- he has a, uh, a bartering conversation with the chief priests of the day and he makes a deal, 30 pieces of silver he will give over the Lord of glory in order for them to arrest him and try him and falsely accuse him and send him to the cross. But there's a second betrayer, a second denier, and it's one that you wouldn't expect, even though when I say his name, you'll remember the story, which is Jesus's other disciple, Peter, also denies the Lord Jesus three times on the night of his crucifixion. And Peter was the man who stood before Jesus and said, I will never deny you. He was so angry about this idea that Jesus was going to have to be killed that he regularly tried to rebuke Jesus about this. Now, if you've been here for the last few weeks, you know, Jesus has been telling his disciples, he's been warning them, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be Uh, arrested and I'm going to be tried. I'm going to be wrongly accused. I'm going to be killed, but I'm going to rise again on the third day. Jesus has said this three times just in the last eight or nine weeks as we've studied the back end of Matthew. Each time Peter's having none of it. He's not interested in this. He doesn't like it. It culminates in the Passover supper where Jesus says it again. And Peter says, if you're going to die, I'll go all the way with you. I won't let it happen. I'm going to go all the way to the cross with you. I will even die if that's what it takes. Peter loves the Lord. And Jesus looks at Peter and you would think maybe it's an encouraging moment, right? Maybe he's going to encourage Peter for all of his loyalty. But instead he looks at Peter and says, before the end of the night, you'll deny me three times before the rooster crows. See, Judas's betrayal is not just a betrayal one time, but Judas's betrayal also is really in three major scenes. Judas, the disciple of Jesus, first betrays Jesus at a dinner table, the place of fellowship. They're sitting around the Passover supper and Judas and Jesus lock eyes and Jesus looks into the eyes of his betrayer and tells him, go do what you have to do. All of the other disciples don't really know what Judas is up to. They just know he walks off and leaves the table. But Judas is going to the chief priest in order to betray the Lord. So first he betrays him at the place of fellowship. Secondarily, Judas betrays Jesus in the temple. So Judas makes his way to the temple and he barters with the chief priest and he gains 30 pieces of silver for Jesus's life. So if he betrayed him first at the place of fellowship, the dinner table, he then betrays him at the place of worship, the temple. And then finally, the place that Judas betrays Jesus is the most uncommon of all, and yet it may be the most fundamental of all, which is that he betrays him in a garden. Jesus is praying at that night of Gethsemane, and here comes Judas, and you guys know the story, right? Judas walks up to Jesus, and what does he do? Gives him a kiss. And Jesus looks at Judas and says, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? But Judas had made a deal with the chief priest, the man that I kiss, which was a common greeting in the day, that will be the man that you will arrest. That's the Lord Jesus. Now, these are not arbitrary. These are all purposeful. The betrayal of Judas at the place of fellowship, at the place of worship. And then finally, why in a garden? Well, where's another garden scene in your Bible? Well, the very first scene that you ever see in all of scripture starts in a garden where our first parents, Adam and Eve, Adam also betrays the Lord Jesus in a garden. He betrays his Lord through rebellion. Judas does the same thing. Judas thought that he knew better than the Lord. Lots of commentators ask, why did Judas do this? There's a lot of commonly held views. One of this is that he doesn't think that Jesus is handling his Messiah role appropriately. He wants Jesus to start really getting after Rome. Why aren't you overtaking the oppressors? But he doesn't understand Jesus' message, which is that he has come to destroy the greatest oppressor of all, namely sin. Satan's sin and death were Jesus' enemies, not Rome. And although Rome was a, a symptom of the disease, the disease is what Jesus was after, and Judas is angry at this. 
But the denial of Peter follows a similar track. And here's what I'll tell you is I think this is important. It's probably the more important of the two betrayers. And I'll tell you why in a second. Jesus is being tried and he's being beaten and he's being mocked. As Peter stands outside, he followed Jesus to the trials. And And Peter is warming his hands by the fire as a servant girl asks him, questions. And this is where he denies the Lord three times. The first question that the servant girl asks is, didn't I see you hanging out with Jesus? In other words, Peter denies the fellowship that he has with Jesus too, because Peter says, no, I'm not, I'm not with him. And then a second time, the servant girl says, wait a minute, I've definitely seen you with the disciples. Aren't you a follower? In other words, he asks him the worship question. Didn't you, didn't you give up fishing to follow this guy? Aren't you like all about worshiping this guy? Peter says, no, I'll have none of it. And then lastly, the servant girl asks, I'm pretty sure you're from Jesus' town, aren't you? You're from Galilee, I can tell it in your voice. What's the question she's asking? She's asking a place of origin. You're from Galilee, you're, you're from the hometown of Jesus, you're numbered with him. And finally, Peter denies being from even the region that Jesus is from. And he even does it with, an, with a curse. A slow alienation and distancing from Jesus happens with Peter, but it happens It happens all of the sudden. You see, Peter thought that he would endure with Christ to the end. He would never disassociate himself from the Lord. And yet he had to be faced with the same truth that even Judas was faced with, namely that the story of Easter is not the good guys and the bad guys. The story of Easter is one good guy and the rest of us bad guys. You catching this? If we, if we don't have the Peter story, we might think there's the Judas, the bad guys. Then there's all of us on Jesus' side. But it's important the gospel say, no, it's just people that are in trouble. They're broken. They're in sin. They can't drink the cup of God's wrath dry. Only one can do that. Jesus stands completely alone in the Easter story. And it has to be this way because there was only one Jesus. There's only one sinless lamb who could take away the sins of the world. There's only one And we only get to identify with him by faith. But in this moment, it was essential that we were all on the other side of the line. And even Peter finds himself there. The Easter story is a reminder that that human beings are sinful and they're born under the wrath of God. Now, I know when I said wrath of God, there was a part of us that went, oh, he's going to go there. Yes, I am. We don't like to talk about wrath, but here's what I'll say. You can't understand love apart from wrath. I love no human being, and I said human being, I love Jesus more, but I love no human beings like I love my family, my wife, my two kids. If in the middle of the night, someone were to rush into my house with the intent to harm my family, they would be met with my wrath. And no one thinks that that's uncommon or unnecessary. In fact, all of us intuitively think, hmm, that makes sense. The reason is because in order for me to truly love something or someone, I also have to hate that which tries to destroy that thing or person. And God is no different. Sin destroys his beloved and he hates sin. He hates it, he loathes it, and he has wrath. One simple way to remind yourself that the wrath of God is consistent with reality is to remember that you have wrath too. You ever think that it's funny that we're okay with us having wrath, but we're just not okay with God having it? Like, I know how I know you have wrath is that some of you on the way here were mad about people driving poorly. I imagine that might have happened. You might have gotten mad at your kids when they weren't dressed appropriately. It's Easter, okay? You need them to be pretty, and they weren't. And you and I are okay with us having wrath, but when God has wrath, we decide, you know what? He only should be happy. No. In order for God to truly be the God who loves us, he also has to abhor that which seeks to destroy. Paul tells us in Romans, and we all understand this innately, 
that God has revealed to us this truth both specially or specifically and generally. He's revealed it to us specifically in the Bible and in the person of Jesus Christ. But no one is without excuse because even if you've never read the Bible or you've never heard the story of Jesus, Paul tells us that even creation itself externally and our conscience internally tells us that there's a fundamental right and wrong, good and evil. Paul tells us that creation is reality constantly reminding us that there are fundamental laws. So even if you disagree with gravity, you still don't, you're still not going to leave here and jump off the roof. And there's a reason for that. In the same way that our conscience will tell us when, th- when we're doing a thing that is right or we're doing a thing that is wrong. And Paul tells us that our problem is not that we don't know what, what is right and what's wrong, but that we don't like what's right and what's wrong. And the hypocrisy of humanity is that when we feel wronged by someone, we'll appeal to the right and wrong, but when we wrong somebody else, we'll reject that right and wrong exist. It looks like something like this. If you're married, you're really mad when your spouse does something wrong to you, and you're thinking, man, we need to sit down. We need to have a family meeting. This can never happen again. But whenever you wrong your spouse, you're like, well, maybe we can get over it. It's kind of a gray area. This is how human beings operate. This is our hypocrisy. You're wrong. Do you want justice? When you wrong someone else, you either want grace or you want to question whether there's right and wrong at all. And this is our nature. We're on a loop with this. We are just constantly doing it. And Paul tells us this. He says, sin is so pervasive that it manifests itself primarily in you and I, our proclivity to suppress that which is true and exchange the truth of God for a lie. So we want truth whenever someone wrongs us, but then whenever we wrong somebody else, what we want is we'll exchange that for kind of a pseudo truth. I don't need the whole truth, just a little. Peter and Judas, they typify all of humanity here. The Bible says this, here's an old truth for you. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Do you know why we're all common in this room? It's not because we all come from the same background, same socioeconomic status, same race, same country, same gender, because we're all sinners. We're all broken. We're all fallen. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the great equalizer. And Peter and Judas remind us of that because it's not the big eyes and little U's. It's not the good guys and the bad guys. It's not the betrayers, Judas and the strong rock of the church, Peter. It's two disciples broken and in need of a savior. And what that does is it highlights the point of Easter, Jesus Christ, the lamb of God, the sinless one. There's a saying in sports and football in particular that fourth and inches might as well be a mile. Because if it's fourth and inches or it's fourth and goal and you only have an inch to go and you've come all this way and you fought this hard for it, it says it might as well be a mile because even if you don't get that last inch, you get zero. You get nothing. So it might as well be as, as far as you want it to be, as far as it needs to be. It's the most difficult down of all the downs, right? And that's exactly how Christians ought to view sin because right now you might be listening to me and you might agree with me that sin is the problem of the world. But unless you go the extra inch to say that sin is the problem with you, you get none. It has to be more than just sin is generally the problem. It has to be us looking in the mirror and say, sin's the problem with me. And now you see Jesus as your savior, not just the general savior for sinners. And so my encouragement would be, let's take the extra inch so that we wouldn't lose it all. You see, there's the the assertion of the Bible, which says this, human beings have done wrong and require God's justice. And then there's the assertion of the world, which says God has done wrong and we need to require of him human justice. And so that leads me to my third point, which is that Easter teaches us about God's justice, that he is a just God. The very next thing that happens after Peter and Judas is you get into these two courtroom scenes. So Jesus is arrested. He is brought to the 
tribunal of the Sanhedrin. These are the religious guys, right? These are the guys that know their Bible and they're mad at Jesus. They're angry at Jesus. They're going to condemn Jesus. They have plotted to kill Jesus. They have their plan already. So they've got all their false witnesses there and they bring Jesus to a trial. He goes through three trials, one uh, before Annas, the high priest, one before Caiaphas, the high priest. It's weird that they have dual high priests at this time, which was not a thing in the Old Testament, but yet they have this. And then it comes before all of the Sanhedrin finally, and they convict Jesus of blasphemy. But there's a second court because the Jews know, the Sanhedrin know they can't crucify Jesus and that's what they're after. This is a bloodthirsty crowd. They're not after just punishing him and silencing him. They're after blood. And so they know they can't kill Jesus. So what do they do? They ask the Romans to try him too. They bring him before Pilate. Pilate sends him to Herod. Herod sends him back to Pilate. Three more trials. Jesus endures six trials over the course of the evening. All of them... All of them were illegal in the religious in the religious right because they should never be doing trial at night. They should never be doing these trials the way that they are, and yet they're doing them. And all of them end the same way, whether it be the Pharisees who are striking Jesus on the on the cheek, or Herod who mocks Jesus and arrays him in splendid clothing, or Pilate who's just not even he just thinks that Jesus is very threatening because his wife had a dream about him the night before, and he wants to let him go but can't. But all of them end the same way that Jesus is handed over to the crowds for crucifixion. Listen to this, the six courts that he goes through, human injustice, and yet all of them are set up for God's justice to be poured out on the lamb. In the single greatest act of human injustice in human history, God has now prepared his son for the single greatest outpouring of his justice ever. Jesus is about to drink the cup of God's wrath dry. Say, court, why do you want to talk about wrath? It's so essential to Easter on the cross, Jesus absorbed all of the wrath of God that was rightly aimed at humanity. He drank this cup of the Father's wrath dry, enduring painful, brutal punishment on Good Friday. Listen to me, the Garden of Gethsemane depicts this. There's this moment where Jesus is praying, and the scriptures record that he is sweating great drops of blood. He is so distressed, it says, to the point of death. Now, I want you to think of this. If you've read through the Gospels, when did you ever see Jesus anxious? Anybody? In all the gospels, what we see of Jesus is he is in complete control, never anxious, always seems the prince of peace has the utmost peace. Even so much that there's this moment where Jesus has fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. He has lived in the wilderness in this time. Picture yourself in the desert. You haven't eaten for 40 days, 40 nights. And then who knocks on the door? The devil. You ever had a bad day? You haven't had that day. You're at your weakest, you're at your lowest, you're in the middle of the desert, you ain't got lights. You know, we just had the freeze, you lost lights, you lost heat. Jesus is out in the middle of the desert and in all of that, he didn't get a stomach bug, the devil came for dinner. And in that moment, Jesus does not even exhibit an ounce of anxiety. He doesn't exhibit an ounce of fear. He doesn't exhibit an ounce of trepidation. And yet in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is so distressed that he's sweating blood. He's so distressed that his disciples are noticing it and they don't know what to do. They've never seen him this way. Why? Why is Jesus this way? There is nothing more terrifying than the wrath of God. You can face the devil himself and this is nothing in comparison with facing the justice of God. The Bible records this. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. The son of God was facing the cup of God's wrath. And that's the only thing that really got Jesus anxious. The only thing that really got him shaking a little bit was not the devil. This is a small salamander serpent compared to what I'm going to face, the holiness of God. You see, this cup represented past, present, and future sins of humanity. Think of this. And all 
all, all of the wrath is directed. The arrow is bent and it's directed directly at Jesus' heart. And now he's got to face that. You see, some people, they misunderstand the cross. Listen to me, friends. Many people died on a Roman cross. It is horrible. It is terrible. It's still one of the worst ways to die, but many people endured it. Only one man drank the cup of God's wrath dry. And that is much worse than what the cross was. Only one man ever really bore that spiritual consequence. Many people bore the physical consequence Jesus did, okay? No one took on what Jesus took on for you and me. You see, Jesus did this. He not only endured the pain, the sorrow, the grief, the forsakenness, the loneliness, and the loss physically, but he drank this cup of all of God's wrath dry for you and for me in our place for our sins. When you look at the cross, this is where God's love and God's justice meet in the Son of God. And I want to say this because it's so important. It's this narrative that's being pushed right now that's a lie. Jesus did not do this because he was forced. Jesus did this because he was willing. No one forced Jesus to the cross. Jesus went to the cross because he loves us. There's this wonderful moment in the Roman trial, and it's so short, if you don't catch it, you'll miss the whole point. But there's this short moment where Pilate is angry. He's got this angst. He doesn't want to let Jesus go to be crucified. And so he says, I'll release to you a criminal. I have a custom. I release one criminal to you at the Passover to do a, a good thing for the Jews. I'll give you guys Jesus back. They have, they've already beaten Jesus up. He's marred beyond recognition. They say, I'll give you Jesus. Just let him go. And the chief priests say, we want nothing to do with that. We want Barabbas. Now, Barabbas is this random character. You never hear about him again. All you know about him is he's a criminal. He's a thief. And he is an insurrectionist. And so in this great symbolic moment at the courtroom of Jesus, Jesus, the only righteous man to ever live, gets condemned. And Barabbas, the criminal, goes free. And the point of this story is for every human being to read it and say, we're Barabbas and Jesus frees us. Jesus stood in Barabbas's place like he stood in your place, like he stood in my place. That's the wonderful point of Easter. Now it doesn't just stop at God's justice. Point number four, Easter teaches us that God is gracious. The Bible records Jesus is then led away to the place of the skull, the place of death, Golgotha. And he's hung between two other criminals. The tradition calls them Gestus and Dismas. We don't know if those are their real names, but tradition says these are the two thieves on the right and the left hand of Jesus. One of them rails at Jesus. If you're really the son of God, then come down from there and save us. The other criminal says, do you not fear God? This man is innocent. You and I are getting what we deserve, but this man's different. And then he looks at Jesus and says, remember me, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. And the famous words of Christ to this thief is, tonight you'll be with me. Today you'll be with me in paradise. But it's in this moment as he's being railed at from one criminal, as he's being railed at by the Roman soldiers, as Jesus is being mocked and they keep bringing wine to his lips, he's got a crown of thorns on his head, that Jesus, he said very few things from the cross, but listen to these words from Jesus. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Those are powerful words. I want you to think about this because if we just pass this by, we'll miss deeply what's happening in this moment. Jesus in his worst moment, in the darkest hour, in the moment where he could potentially, in his human mind and in his humanity, he could have the most bitter justice toward you and I. Vengeance could be in his heart. I'm done with these people. And in that moment, he says, forgive them. And I want you to know this is not just for the soldiers. This is for every human being that will ever exist, both before and then thereafter. Jesus, in the worst moment, forgave you. And once again, 
The reason that I said you have to know that sin is your problem is so that when you hear that, you can know, you know you're forgiven in Christ. That's your worst. Paul knew this, the murderer Paul that became the apostle Paul. He said that when we were at our weakest, Christ died for us. Though you were weak, Jesus died for you in that moment. Not at your best, not at your Sunday best. It's Easter. I got a pink shirt on for goodness sake. If you know me, I only wear like two colors. They're both muted. Jesus didn't love me at my pink best. You see, you only know what your worst moment is. Maybe your spouse might know it. But I want you to put yourself there and know that at that moment, Jesus found going to the cross and dying for you a worthy endeavor. That's the God that we serve on Easter. That's how much Jesus is trustworthy. It's a wonder that he would do this for us. And I say this because I don't want you to be worried that if you catch God on his worst day and you just so happen to be on your worst day that at that moment you're gonna meet the wrath of God. The reason I can be sure that that's not the case is because why? Because Jesus, his disposition towards you will never change. Finally, and then we'll read Matthew 28 and verses one through 10. Easter teaches us that God is powerful. The end of the story of Easter is not the crucifixion. It's what we're celebrating this morning. Listen to this, verse one, after the Sabbath towards the dawn of the first day. So the Jewish Sabbath's on Saturday. This is early Sunday morning. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. You gotta love that Mary Magdalene sees Jesus first. This is a woman who was demon possessed by seven demons. She had seen the worst of the worst and she had done the worst of the worst. And she's the first person to meet up with the resurrected Christ. Verse two, behold, there's a great earthquake and an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came, rolled back the stone. I love this and sat on it. An angel rolled up, rolled the stone back and sits down. His appearance, check this out, is like lightning. His clothing, white as snow. Verse four, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. These are not sissy men. The Roman soldiers could be the most ruthless army, the most ruthless military force in human history. And they're standing guard at Jesus' tomb. And when they see this angel, they are done. They were sent there particularly to make sure that this didn't happen. You see that in verse 11. They say, whatever happens, make sure this tomb does not get opened because we don't want anybody thinking that this guy really was who he said he was. And what happens, the angel shows up and it's not a fight. If in your vision of the battle between good and evil, that it's a real battle, it's a real fight, it's only a battle in so much as we struggle with it. God doesn't struggle with squashing Satan for good. He's in complete control. The angel shows up, rolls the stone back, sits down, might as well have a pipe. He's not concerned about Rome. He's not concerned about Satan, death, hell, the grave. Those have been done away with now. The angel said to the women, I love that the guards run away and the women are still there. (laughs) Girls, this is a great shining moment for you, okay? The women are still like, so is Jesus in there, you know? (laughs) The angel said, don't be afraid. I know you seek Jesus who was crucified, but he is not here. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here anymore. Do you know that every other major world religion has the grave sites of all of their founders except for one, and we don't even know where his tomb was? We don't know the real tomb of Jesus. You know why? Because who cares? He's not there anymore. Every other founder of every other major religion, they worship at the, at the tomb because their bones are still there. But you know what? Their bones will come back to sinew and flesh, and they will stand before the real king, Jesus Christ. He's alive now. And the angel announces this. He says, hey, I know you're looking for the crucified Christ. The crucified Christ is no more. The risen Christ is alive. 
Jesus shows up to his disciple John in the book of Revelation and he has a few new names he wants to announce to him. I am the first, I am the last. I died, but behold, I am alive forevermore. I hold with me the keys to death, to hell, to the grave. These are things that Jesus announces to his disciples upon his resurrection. There's none like Jesus. The angel says, why don't you come and see the place where the Lord lay? Why would the angels want them to do that? They want, the angels want these women to see he's not there, where he did lay, not where he is. Then I want you to go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. Behold, he's going before you to Galilee. See, I have told you. So they depart quickly and with fear and great joy, they run and tell his disciples. I love verse nine. Behold, Jesus meets them on the way and says, greetings. Jesus is in the path. Hey, good morning. You got to love this, right? There are theories that say Jesus didn't really die, but he swooned and the disciples kind of laid him in a tomb and then they brought him out like a cripple later on in front of people to show him, you know, like, like weekend at Bernie's. You know, that is not what the Bible records. Jesus shows up in a new resurrected body and power. He's eating fish. He's walking seven miles to Emmaus. He, he shows up to them and he's not in a wheelchair. He says, hey, good morning. He's up early. Jesus was raised in power. Why is this important? Because God raised Jesus from the dead the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is God the Father's way of certifying for all time that everything that was necessary in order for the wrath of God to be assuaged, every human sin and the price that came along with that human sin has now been paid by the Lamb of God. Jesus on the last words on the cross was, it is finished. On the resurrection, the Father says, it is finished. The Son says, I have done all that needs to be done. And then God the Father says, it's acceptable. He will come to life again. And what Paul said is in Jesus' life, you and I can be certain that's our life too. As certain as the sun will rise tomorrow, Jesus rose from the dead. As certain as Jesus rose from the dead, you and I will also be risen from the dead. There is nothing more important than the resurrection of Jesus. Paul the apostle, the guy who gave his whole life to the resurrection of Jesus in that message, he said, if Jesus wasn't raised, we should just eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we're gonna die and who knows what comes next. But he says, guess what? Jesus is alive. We know what comes next. You know, you can be worried about a lot of things tomorrow and be anxious about what your life's gonna be like. Can I tell you something? If you are in Christ, you can be sure about what comes at the great tomorrow. When we go from this to the great beyond, you will see Jesus, your friend, your savior. And he'll make you like him is what the Bible says. First John says, when we see him, we'll be made like him. What a wonderful idea. Today we celebrate because Jesus is alive, seated at the right hand of the Father, extending grace and mercy to every human being who repents and believes in him solely for salvation. Jesus rose in power, power over sin, death, hell, the grave, and now he's alive. There's a story after this, after Jesus is raised, there's a man named Thomas, one of the disciples of Jesus. And Thomas is struggling because Peter has now seen the risen Lord and John has seen the risen Lord. And now some of the women have seen the risen Lord and the disciples on the road to Emmaus have seen the risen Lord, but Thomas is not. And he says, unless I see with my own eyes, unless I touch his wrist, unless I touch his ribs, his side, I won't ever believe. As a pastor, you know, I have a lot of responsibilities. The good news is God has prioritized my responsibilities for me. I always joke, you know, sometimes as a pastor, you'll be a, maybe you'll be a standing beside someone's bedside one day praying. The next day you might be a janitor. 
at the church. The next day you might be praying in a living room, but the next day you might be a moving ex specialist. <laughs> it's an odd thing, but the good news is that God's prioritized. He said, there's one thing that stands above all the other things for me. And that is that I'm called to tell you the truth this morning. The main thing that I'm called to do, it's why I started by saying, Hey, I'm just the mailman, not the mail, not the mail writer. But as a human being, you have a lot of responsibilities too. Your responsibility this morning, God has sifted them for you. Listen, you're going to go, you're going to have dinner, you're going to have fun with your family. Easter Sunday's here, it's awesome. But you know what? We all know, and we're all pro- probably some of us are lingering more than others. Monday's coming with a ton of other responsibilities, isn't it? They're just all going to hoard back up on our plate. But here's the good news. God has singularly helped you to shimmy it all down to what the main responsibility that is for you this morning. And my responsibility is to tell the truth. Your responsibility is to decide on who you're going to trust. See, we're in a crisis of trust right now. Our cultural moment has brought us to this crisis. We don't know where to turn for the truth as a culture. We don't know who to trust because we don't know who's going to make sense of this madness that isn't in it for themselves. And I'm not saying this from a Christian perspective. It's not uniquely Christian what I'm talking about, but you know, people all over the world are recognizing this. One gal named Rachel Botsman, she's a lecturer at Oxford University. She, she's listed on her website as a trust expert. <laughs> and that may seem funny, but she's devoted her time in her life right now. She's a very smart girl uh, in order to bring this trust issue to bear and to basically try to make sense of it. She's not doing that from necessarily a Christian worldview. She's just saying there's something wrong. Listen to her quote about where we are right now. A deep loss of faith in banks, government, media, church, and other elite institutions is not a new phenomenon, but what's unprecedented, however, is the extent and the rate of the breakdown of trust. That we are now witnessing between citizens and institutions, between the everyman and the elites, a massive breakdown of trust. Alarmingly, survey after survey of public sentiment across the country, across age groups, tells a similar and woeful tale, close close quote. She says, it doesn't matter. It's across every generation. I don't, I don't know who you are and I don't know where you're at, but most likely, statistically speaking, you actually don't think that anyone who's in authority is trustworthy. You don't know if they're for you. You don't know if they're, they're gonna tell you the truth or if they're really out for their own gain. And it's hard for you to, whether it's to turn on the news or whether it's to read a book to know whether or not this is false information or true. Now, in one sense, this isn't all that surprising because human beings tend to trust people who are competent, who are in touch with reality and who have their best interest at heart. And sin is the sin at its very essence, undermines all three of those things. Sin has a way of making us less competent because we aren't willing to grapple with reality, which is God at the bottom of it. You see, sin is is a neglecting of God. But Easter is different. Easter is God's emphatic way to remind us once and for all, hey, there's one who stands alone worthy of your trust. His name is Jesus. Listen to me this morning. This is me telling you the truth. There is not and will never be any human being or institution that is as competent or wise as Jesus Christ. There is not and there will never be any human being or institution as in touch with reality as the author of reality, Jesus Christ. There is not and there will never be any human being or human institution that is as interested in your well-being as the one who created you and died for you, Jesus Christ. In a day that is so bereft of trust, I want to commend to you, you can trust Jesus this morning. And I pray that you will trust Jesus this morning. Because just like Thomas, the story of Thomas ends in this way. Thomas and his brothers are are in the upper room praying. 
and they've locked the doors out of fear of the Roman, the Roman persecution. And in the midst of their prayers, someone walks through the locked door. And it just so happens that it's Jesus. All the disciples are shocked. They're ready to hear from Jesus. They want to worship Jesus. They want to talk with Jesus. Jesus has one disciple on his mind. He says, Thomas, will you touch my wrist now? Will you touch my side? I don't know every person in the room, but some may even feel like the door of your heart is locked to God. He has a way of breaking through locks like that. And my prayer is that as he stands forth this morning, that you would place your hands in his wrists and his side and know that this king stands alone as trustworthy. Jesus is different. Maybe this morning you'll trust Jesus for the first time, or maybe it'll be all over again. But nonetheless, the call is the same. Trust Jesus this morning. He's the only one worthy of our trust. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. No, Jesus, because you live, we can face tomorrow. Because you're alive, everything that you said can be authenticated. We can open this word and know that it's true because Jesus, you're alive today. Thank you that we serve a living God. Thank you that you're unique and that there's no name under heaven by which we can be saved in all the earth but the name of Jesus. And so Holy Spirit, now would you draw us, draw us to worship, draw us to sing, but most of all, draw us to trust you with our whole heart. For those under the sound of my voice, who in a time where we're so bereft of who we can trust, Jesus, we long to trust you. And I long that everyone under the sound of my voice would trust you, Jesus. And in so doing that we would build our house on the rock so that when the storms come, And when the wind batters, that Lord, our lives will stand the test of time so that when we go from here to the the hereafter, we'll see you face to face and our faith will become sight. We love you, Lord. We ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.